Good morning, church. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, if you have children up through fifth grade and you'd like them to attend some age-specific teaching, they can now be released to Gospel Project. Uh, for those of you who haven't met me, my name's Tanyan Berry. My wife, Lindsay, and I have been members at Church on Mill since November of 2016. Um, I just finished up this last year a pastoral residency with the church where I've been learning and training to be a pastor in the future. And my wife and I also serve here as deacons with corporate worship. So we've been so blessed to be here with you, really growing and thriving in the Lord with all of you. Thank you. This morning will be in Exodus 32. So if you'll go ahead and turn there as we get started. It's on page 41 in the Blue Bibles. If you didn't bring one, you can grab that out of the seat in front of you and turn to page 41. During the last three Sundays, Moses has been on the mountain top, and God has shown him and us some really amazing things. God wants to be with his people, and he wants to interact with them, so he's given them instructions about the tabernacle, the priests, and means for approaching him. But as Moses is delighting in God's presence over 40 days and nights, things in the camp aren't looking so good. As we come down from the mountaintop of God's good design to dwell among his people, we'll see today that there's a people who are far from ready to receive him. Let's start together with verses one through six of Exodus 32. This is the word of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he fashioned the gold from their hand. Sorry, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a tragic shift from the last time we saw the people when we last saw them in chapter 24, they had just entered into a covenant with God. They vowed to obey all of his words and they ratified the covenant with a feast and offerings. It was like a beautiful wedding ceremony between God and his redeemed, consecrated people. But during Moses' 40 days and nights on the mountain, the people started to get antsy they wondered what had become of Moses, this man whom God had used to lead them out. They wondered, had, had he died on the mountain, maybe? I mean, he was 80, after all, and he didn't take any food with him. Could he really still be alive up there after 40 days and nights? Or maybe he had overstayed his welcome in God's presence. No one else could go up on the mountain. Are we really sure Moses could live up there that long? And yet, all the while, as they might be having these kinds of doubts, they can still see on the mountaintop the presence of God like a consuming fire. And every day, they're still eating the manna 
that God is providing. So it would be completely clear still that God is active and providing for them, but they're uncomfortable because they want something easier to touch, to feel, to control, and to represent God. They want something to give them security, comfort, and direction on their terms, in their time, and under their control. And that's what an idol is. And yet the tragedy is that idols have no power to provide those things, instead they actually rob us of those things. In the Israelites' case, they wanted a way to feel like God is with them and to see him going before them, but do you see how foolish it is? They wanna make something with their own hands that they can then hold out in front of themselves and march before them and say, our gods are going before us. Gods made by people that can't even walk, they have to be carried by people out in front of people. It's just a delusion, it's a farce. And it's an insult and a rejection of the one true God who did lead them out of Egypt. It's a rejection of what Exodus 20 verse two says when God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Only the Lord is God and he's the one who brought them out. It's why the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me and why the second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. God had demonstrated that the glory of his presence could not be imitated by some man-made object. Think back to some of the ways he's, he's shown himself to the people in a burning bush, in thunder and lightning, in thick clouds and trumpet blasts, in a pillar of cloud and fire, in a consuming fire on the mountain top. The true God cannot be contained or represented or controlled like some sculpted trinket. But that's what the people want. And Aaron, who of all people should have shut this down, goes along with the plan. And there's, there's a great irony when he tells the people to take off their golden earrings to use them to make this calf. You see, when the people had come out of Egypt, God had given them plunder from the Egyptians, loads and loads of treasure, gold and silver and fine cloths and all kinds of things. Why? Well, the last three Sundays we've seen why. He's given them instructions about what to build, what to make, and it takes lots of precious materials. God has given them lots of things, including these golden earrings, so that they would have what they needed to make what he's commanded. And instead, they take what God's given them to prepare for his presence, and they use it to make an idol. And Aaron, who's supposed to be their priest, is acting as the craftsman, even though God has designated specific other craftsmen. This is going completely against God's instructions from the last three chapters. And perhaps Aaron is trying to salvage the situation, or maybe he thinks he's done something good for the people and giving them a way to access God more easily when he says, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. But unlike the feast that God has actually ordained, which helped the people remember that he is their God and their redeemer, this feast is one of drunken pagan revelry. They blaspheme the Lord by claiming to worship him while associating him with other gods in a carved image. And it's a tragic contrast when we remember the last time we saw the people of Israel. 
when we remember what they were doing right before Moses went up on the mountain to receive these instructions back in Exodus 24 at the end of the covenant ratification ceremony, the elders of the people sat down in God's presence to eat and drink. But here, the people are sitting down with their idol to eat and drink. We have certainly left the mountaintop of God's good design to dwell among his people. They have broken their vows after only 40 days. And now we're left with this question, how will God respond to this rebellious people? What will he do with them? But before we answer that question, I'm going to do something a little unconventional and start with the application. Uh, I wanna show you what you should do with the rest of this passage so that you can meditate on it and process it as we work through it together. The Apostle Paul actually tells us very directly what we ought to do with it. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses six and seven, he quotes Exodus 32, six, and says, now these things, referring to the events here, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So this is a warning for us. The things that happened among the people after they were redeemed from Egypt are a warning for us. This isn't a warning for those outside the church, it's for God's redeemed people, those in the church, to flee idolatry and serve God alone. So we modern Christians are also prone to idolatry, and we need the truths of Exodus 32 to help guard our hearts and our minds against it. But I know some of you are probably thinking, I don't need this example. I don't need this warning. I've never had a desire to make a little golden cow statue. That's not me. I don't want to burn my earrings. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Um, <laughs> well, times may have changed, but the human heart has not. We are just as prone to idolatry as they were, only we're a little bit better than they are at deceiving ourselves and concealing it. Because most of us in the West don't have physical statues that are our idols. We don't have these physical things that we're serving or worshiping or sacrificing to. But remember, the Israelites made the idol because they wanted to control their source of comfort and security and direction. And don't we do that today? Don't we strive after that? And they made a calf because that was a common way in the ancient Near Eastern cultures of representing strength and virility of deity. So their culture and background influenced the idols they chose, and ours does too. Our culture just tends not to call these idols gods, tends not to form physical animal figurines out of them, and promotes a variety of different idols. Uh, here's a few to consider that are very common among us that we might think on and seek our hearts for. Do you seek direction in discovering who you are inside and living out what you feel and desire as most true? The idol of individualism. Or do you seek comfort in escaping the troubles and the trials of work and life by sedating yourself with excessive shows and movies and video games and social media? The idol of entertainment. Do you seek security 
by obsessing over your investments and find yourself constantly riding highs and lows emotionally with the stock market, the idol of retirement? Do you seek peace and self-worth in the numbers that show up on your assignments and your transcripts, the idol of grades? Do you seek significance more from what your kids think of you and what parents think of your kids than how faithful you are in teaching them obedience and the fear and love of the Lord, the idol of children? Do you seek stability and a sense of well-being from your own productivity and accomplishments and feel anxious and threatened when you're behind or underperforming, the idol of work? I could go on and on and on. Our idols are as numerous as the stars. But the scariest thing, perhaps, is that Israel convinced themselves they were actually worshiping God through their idol. They said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And we can do the same thing, even as we seek to forsake idolatry and serve God alone, we can find our security and our confidence in our own supposed piety, the idol of works righteousness. Not one of us is safe from this temptation. Though we are redeemed, like Israel in Exodus 32, we can, if we are not careful, forget our God and fall into idolatry. So as we continue through the chapter, keep Paul's exhortation in your mind and search your heart for what idols might be present and hold them up to the light of the word as we see the folly of idolatry and see the greatness of God's character in response. By his grace, may the rest of Exodus 32 help us trust in and serve the one true God alone. Well, we've seen that God's redeemed people have now rebelled against him just 40 days after making a covenant, so how does he respond? Let's keep reading starting in verse seven and we'll see. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God sees that the people have broken covenant with him and he righteously threatens their destruction. But Moses intercedes and God relents. So what's going on here? Did God change his mind? Did Moses find out a way to convince God to change his mind? And if so, how did he do it? Well, the answer is no. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. So what happened then if God didn't change his mind? 
Well, the syntax here in the original language marks everything that follows let me alone in verse 10 as purpose clauses, as the results should Moses choose to follow this course of action. That's why the ESV says, let me alone that my wrath may burn, and in order that I may, provoke, that I may make you into a great nation. You see, God didn't here say definitively that he would destroy them, but instead proposed a course of action to Moses and explained its results. He told Moses that he could leave him alone and three things would happen. One, God's wrath would burn. Two, he would destroy stiff-necked Israel. And three, he would make Moses into a great nation instead. He basically told Moses, this people is a mess. I could start over with you and still make a great nation for myself. God's telling Moses that this is what would go down should Moses choose not to intercede. An enticing offer, perhaps, Moses wouldn't have to deal with rebellious Israel anymore and he would be the father of a great nation. Just think, not the sons of Israel, but the sons of Moses. But Moses has his eyes set on God's glory and not his own. His response aligns with God's big picture intent throughout the whole book of Exodus. In fact, this whole discourse between Moses and God is not about God changing his mind, but about God dramatically displaying why he did not wipe out Israel for their covenant infidelity. And he does so by offering Moses this chance to intercede through Moses' intercession and Moses' three arguments that he gives. First argument in verse 11, God had mightily redeemed the people of Israel the glory of his redemptive work and purposes would be nullified if he now exterminated his redeemed people. Reason two in verse 12, the Egyptians would say that God only brought them out in order to kill them himself. So God's reputation among the nations was at stake. Reason three in verse 13, God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make their descendants numerous and to give those descendants the land so the constancy and the faithfulness of God to his promises is also at stake here. In other words, Moses is concerned with the same thing that God has been concerned with throughout the whole book of Exodus so far, that God would be known. God doesn't change his mind. He uses this dramatic conversation to show the reason for his grace and mercy. He should wipe out Israel for betraying him, but he doesn't because he desires to be known by them and all peoples as the mighty redeemer, the covenant keeper, the only faithful, the only true God. God is merciful so that he may be known. So through Moses' intervention, we see God's first response to his rebellious people. He first responds to them with mercy. And now we ask, if, if God's not going to destroy Israel, is he going to continue? allow them to continue in this rebellion? Will he, in his mercy, just allow them to continue in idolatry unchecked? Well, let's read what happens next in verses 15 to 29. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. 
And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Well, now it seems like God certainly changed his mind. Uh, It sounds like he's bringing destruction on his people after all. But that is not the case either. No, he relented from destroying the entire people, which numbered about 600,000 at this point. And the death of these 3,000 is still a harsh consequence. But it will make a little bit more sense if we start from the beginning of the passage of this section. So Moses came down from the mountain with the most precious rocks in existence in his hands. These stone tablets with the Ten Commandments inscribed on them by God. This is not just the Word of God, but the Word of God written down in stone by God himself. How precious these would have been as the summary of the covenant that the people had made with God. But as Moses descended with these treasures in hand, Joshua's assistant, hears a tumult from the camp and says, there's war in the camp. There's battle happening with the people. Whatever pagan revelry their feast to the Lord had devolved into, it was so chaotic that it sounded like war from a distance. And when Moses came close enough to see the calf they had made, he burned with a holy anger. He had just been receiving glorious, wonderful instructions from God about how he would prepare a way to be dwelling, his presence among his people, and for them to interact with him and approach him. And now he was staring at a people who had gone far astray, forsaking and breaking their covenant with their Redeemer God. So when Moses threw the tablets down at the foot of the mountain and broke them, he didn't just suddenly go into a a rage. No, this was a meaningful and calculated display for the people. They had broken the covenant. So Moses broke these precious God-inscribed tablets that contained the covenant. And neither is Moses going delirious and exacting cruel and unusual punishments when he burns the calf and grinds it and puts on the water and makes them drink it. No, he's rebuking them for their sin and giving them a visceral warning. 
why it would be folly to repeat. Think, the people had just been worshiping, bowing down to, and sacrificing to this calf, this metal sculpture, a created thing that had no power. And they called it Yahweh, and called it their gods. So Moses wants to show them that the calf is nothing. Imagine being an Israelite who had just been offering sacrifices and dancing before this calf in your feast to the Lord. Imagine that you're one of them and now you see Moses come down and he takes the calf and he burns it. And you watch him grind it into powder and put it on water until you drink. And as you drink it, you can taste that the thing that you were just worshiping is only dust. And now, as it's going through your body, it's turning into waste. And when it passes through you, it would be graphically clear that this idol is defiled and good for nothing. You could not miss the point Moses would be making to you. Idols are nothing and it's foolish to serve them. Brothers and sisters, heed Moses' graphic instruction. We don't want Pastor Chuck to come back from the mountains of Colorado and have to burn an idol for us and make us drink it. So heed what Moses has done here. And he would do it. <laughs> Moses is clearly showing the people that no one and nothing is worthy or capable of bearing the weight of worship and faith and trust and service except the Lord God. And if that wasn't enough, to expose the foolishness of idolatry, Aaron's response to Moses' questioning puts the icing on the cake. Like a toddler who points at the shards of a vase and says, someone broke that. Aaron gives the convincing defense, out came this calf. And it really would be laughable if he hadn't abandoned his responsibility of watching over the people in Moses' absence. After Moses rebukes the people and calls out Aaron for his disastrous leadership, he takes action to preserve the people from further decay. He, he stands in the gate where announcements would have been made and gave a rallying cry, who is for the Lord? Come to me. And all the men of the tribe of Levi came to him and he gave them instructions from God to put those clinging to idolatry to death. Now, it might seem like it initially when you read, but this isn't an indiscriminate killing of the Levi's relatives, and loved ones. You see, the, when it says brother, companion, and neighbor, it's giving an all-inclusive category to say, kill anyone who hasn't turned from idolatry, regardless of your relation to them. We know that many of the people had heeded Moses' rebuke and apparently repented of the idolatry because only 3,000 of the 600,000 died. And yet, 3,000 is still a lot. This wasn't a command to kill everyone responsible for the idolatry in the first place. I mean, Aaron was spared and he actually made the calf. No, this was a removal of all of those who sought to continue the cult of the golden calf after Moses had destroyed it. By sacrificing to other gods, Exodus 22:20 20 tells us, these idolaters had devoted themselves to destruction. So God was true to his word. They were devoted to destruction. And he responded to his rebellious people here with justice, putting the unrepentant idolaters to death. Now we, accustomed to modern Western thinking, might find the killing of 3,000 idolaters among the people difficult or even impossible to justify. But one commentary I read this week helpfully 
put it this way, Moses, on the other hand, understood that leaving idolaters in the midst of Israel to influence others away from the opportunity for eternal life was impossible to justify. You see, God was sparing Israel as a people from destruction when he responded mercifully. And if he left those who might lead Israel into destruction in the future there, it wouldn't have solved the problem. If you have cancer and it's isolated in a tumor, you will perform surgery to remove that tumor before it can spread to the rest of the body and kill everything. This was just the first 40 days of Israel's covenant with God. It was essential that aggressive action be taken to restore and preserve them as his covenant people. Now to be clear, today we don't kill idolaters among God's people. We're not in the first 40 days anymore and we have a better covenant. But we do call anyone who's fallen into idolatry to repent and to put their idols to death in their hearts. To summarize so far, these two sections of Exodus 32 after the people have committed idolatry show us that God responds to his rebellious people with both justice and mercy. God responds to his rebellious people with both justice and mercy, but when we sin today, which will we get? Justice or mercy? Like the Israelites, it will depend on whether or not we repent, but there's more here in Exodus 32 about how God's mercy and justice interact. Let's read together the last few verses starting in Exodus 32 verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, Go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. While God has relented from destroying the people, Moses recognized that sin still requires a payment. God had relented in mercy, but atonement still had to be made. The sins had to be covered and removed in God's sight. That's what Moses attempted to do in confessing the people's sin before God and asking for forgiveness. And because he knows that there needs to be an atonement, he offers himself as leverage. He dramatically says, God, forgive these people, but if not, blot me out of your book that you have written. And the book he's referring to is a record of God's redeemed people. It's a metaphor for belonging to God. But God rejects his offer and says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out my book. And then we see God's mercy and justice again. God shows mercy by saying his angel will still go before the people to lead them to the land. But he shows his justice. He will visit Israel's sin upon them. Will we too receive both mercy and justice for our sins. And the words of verse 33, at least for me, are still hanging ominously in the air. Whoever has sinned against me, 
I will blot out of my book. The New Testament develops this idea of God's book, his book of life, as a record of all the redeemed who will have eternal life with him. Mercy. But those whose names are not found in the book will face God's eternal wrath for sin. Justice. When we hear these words in verse 33, they ought to make us tremble. Moses' atonement was rejected. His self-offering has not removed sin in God's eyes. And this is not just a problem for ancient Israel, it's a problem for us today, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I have sinned, each of you has sinned. Not one of us is free from sin on our own. And God says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, friends. How will any one of us not then be blotted out? Other sins besides, not one of us has kept ourselves perfectly from idolatry. We've all made our own golden calves in our hearts. We have sinned against God. Will he not blot us out? Oh God, be merciful. But we praise God this morning because he has been merciful. Moses may have offered himself and failed to atone, because he was himself a sinner. But God, the only perfect sinless one, could offer himself to atone. And Jesus, God in the flesh, did just that to remove our sins completely and forever. Just uh, look with me at the second half of Hebrews 9.26. It says this, But as it is, he, that's Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus's self-offering to atone was effective. God accepted his sacrifice. God has fulfilled justice by punishing sin in Jesus's crucifixion. And he has shown mercy to us by taking our sins and placing them on Jesus and taking Jesus's righteousness and placing it on us. So we praise him. Now all who repent and believe in him will not be blotted out of his book. Brothers and sisters, our names will remain in the book of life forever because our Savior Jesus has successfully atoned for our sins and written our own names with his own blood. In Jesus Christ, God responds to his rebellious people with both justice and mercy. This is ultimately how the two come together. Sin is punished and forgiveness is granted at the cross. So as we seek to heed Paul and his exhortation regarding Exodus 32, as we seek to forsake idolatry, do so by remembering your Redeemer, Jesus. Don't forget your Redeemer like Israel did at the foot of the mountain, but remember your Redeemer who fulfilled justice and provided mercy. Remember him and we have a church for a reason. Remind each other daily of him so that none of you may fall into sin's deceitfulness. And remember that idols are nothing. They can be ground into dust and swallowed and excreted like the waste they are. But Jesus is our perfect atonement. He is our God. Worship him alone. And when we all inevitably find our hearts straying towards idolatry, hear Moses' cry. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me and return to God with rejoicing that he has kept your name in his book. Fight idolatry by remembering how God responds to his rebellious people with complete justice 
and complete sweet mercy in Jesus. And friend, if you're here this morning and you don't yet follow Jesus, we're so glad you've joined us. Thank you for sitting through a difficult passage with us. Let me be clear, Exodus 32 is not some diatribe against those who don't claim to be Christians following other gods. No, its warning was for ancient Israel and for those in the church. Exodus 32 shows God's righteous jealousy over his redeemed people who have sworn lifelong allegiance to him. So if you're considering following him this morning, know that he doesn't take that commitment lightly. Following the Lord is not something you can do flippantly, and yet, he is so worth following. Because he has come and dwelt among us in Jesus, the God-man who, unlike Moses, both intercedes and offered perfect atonement on our behalf. Repent and believe in him, and your name too will be found written in the book of life forever. Now let's pray together to the God who has responded to our rebellion with justice and mercy at the cross. Father God, what a gift you have given us. God, we don't deserve it, and not one of us could offer atonement for our sins, but only your son, Jesus. Thank you for giving him to us. God, help us daily to remind ourselves and to remind each other of how great a redeemer you are, how worthy of worship, and how completely useless any idols are. They cannot live, they cannot even walk. God, they can give us nothing but destruction. But you, God, when we worship you and follow you and trust in you, give us everlasting life and security and confidence. God, help us this week to trust you, to believe you, and to rejoice in our great Redeemer. It's in his name we pray, amen.